Hi, WellPod listeners. Brandon here. Before we get started with this episode of The Drop, I wanted to mention up front a special project we have for our upcoming Season 3 of The Well. We want to have survival expert Tom McElroy on as a guest, but in order to get the full story, I'll be going to a wilderness survival camp on an island this winter to have him teach me how to survive in the wilderness for seven days using only a knife. And for this one, I've started an Indiegogo campaign to defray the cost of air travel, the tuition for the class, among a few other things. I'm not factoring in the cost of all the time I'm taking off work to go do this, so this is not a money-making venture by any means. So your support is the only thing that makes this feasible for me. And we have already received so much support for this. I am overwhelmed and I am humbled. But more importantly, it raises the bar for me. You've signaled a lot of faith in us, and now these episodes have to be the best we've ever produced. So, if you have not donated yet but would like to, then go to our website or Facebook to find the Indiegogo link, make a donation, and select a perk. We have coffee mugs, t-shirts, coconuts engraved by Anson and myself. If you've already donated, thank you a million times. It means the world to us. And now, on with the show. Welcome to The Well. I am Brandon Edgens. And I'm Anson Mount. And this is our most recent installment of our new segment called The Drop, which for people that are unfamiliar with our show or just new listeners, uh, this is something that we've been doing as a between seasons segment to keep up to date with our listeners. So if you really want to get a good taste for our show, we recommend that you start listening to our episodes at the beginning and work your way up. Yeah. All yeah. right. So do you want to kick it off? No. Or do we? No? No, I don't want to kick it off. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, we should talk about where I've just been. That's what I was about to, I was setting that up. I was like, you know, if anyone's got some news between this drop and the last drop, it's you. Yeah. You just went on a fantastic, fantastic voyage. I did. Yeah. My wife, Dara, and I went to the Star Trek convention in Birmingham destination and had an amazing time there. It was a... Really wonderful experience. Uh, And then we hopped over to Waterford, Ireland to see some friends of hers. And then we decided to take 10 days in Portugal, which is a place that neither of us ever, ever been to before. And we just kind of randomly picked it off the map. And man, I love Portugal. I wasn't really prepared Mm -hmm. for what driving through Portugal would be like, but it's almost every town you come across has a medieval castle. And and they still live there, not necessarily in the castle itself, but when you go past, you know, the first battlement or the city wall, people still live within the city wall right. that's that was protected by the castle at the time. And these streets are thousands of years old. Or not thousands, but they still live in a lot of these domiciles that have been there forever. So for instance, uh, the, the place that we were staying in, in Castile de Vide, was literally next door to the entrance to the castle. And in the house we rented, 
the the walls are built around the naturally occurring limestone outcroppings of that hill. The people <clears throat> were particularly lovely. First of all, it's easy to think if you're going to Portugal that it's probably kind of like Spanish. And de <laughs> there's definitely parallels, but there are differences, particularly in its spoken form. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for instance, you know, we're used to, we're more used to listening to Brazilian Portuguese here, which sounds much closer mm. to South American Spanish. Um, in Portuguese, Portu Portugal Portuguese, mm -hmm. first of all, they speak much faster. <laughs> and they have um, a lot of a lot of like this in the back uh. of their mouth, and they use a lot of j and sh, so it sounds almost Slavic. It, it it's it is different. So so for instance, we're going in to see uh, Penna Palace, which is the old royal seat, and I decided to duck in and get some of those headphones mm -hmm. where you can listen in English mm -hmm. to what you're seeing and as a uh, I'm getting them from the lady uh, she says to me uh, no no fotografia no tauge and I and I I knew no fotografia that's a yeah. clear parallel to Spanish it means no photography but mm -hmm. no tauge I was like okay no, sorry no fotografia no tauge and she goes no tauge well see you got it huh I'm, I'm sitting there thinking this has to be a clear parallel that I'm not getting. What could it be? No, what could it be? No tausch. And she picks up her hand, puts it in my face, slaps the desk, and goes, No tausch, no tausch, nothing inside. <laughs> right. The other thing that you have to get used to is that the, the Portuguese people, they're so. They're so lovely and they're so proud of their country that we we had to start budgeting time at the beginning of getting each new Airbnb for the host to mm. tell us about their community mm. and about all the things that you have to say. It's lovely. That's great. It's lovely. But they can also be sort of um, demanding, but not in any rude way. They're demanding about what you must do and how right. you must experience it. That's pride. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know? And like, they, they absolutely yeah. demand you go to this place, you go to that place. And also, we were at a, a restaurant, right, for instance. And the the waiter, we were we were sort of at a, an end, and we, we asked for the bill. And the waiter goes, uh, no. <laughs> like, what? And he goes, no. You know, finish your wine. You know, finish your dessert. No coffee. You know, done. You finish your dessert, you get coffee, maybe then you'd be done. And he walks away. <laughs> right? Okay. So we finish our dessert, we drink our coffee, and go, okay, Bill? And he can, goes, ah. Uh, can we go? He goes, ah, uh, no. You know that. <laughs> because I have a gift for you. Come inside. So we go inside the restaurant because we're sitting outside. He comes inside. He pours us port. Oh, God. He pours us port. And any 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 the, the whole the whole uh, restaurant was was saying hello to us. It was just a really lovely time. Uh, we just fell in love with this country. I guess people don't think of Spain and Portugal as a border town. Do you think of it as like the southwest tip of Europe? So you would think it'd be like super isolated, stuck out there like that. But it isn't because it's so close to Northern Africa. Yeah, and so you get 
everything that's in Northern Africa at that time or throughout the centuries filtering up and there's art and architecture like nowhere else. And you see the remnants of the sailing wealth uh-huh. that yeah, came sure. out of the, you know, the expansion, the Portuguese expansion and the, right. and the, the coffee fortunes. And, right. People forget that yeah. that tiny little country like ruled the seas yeah. for centuries. Them and the Dutch. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. The, both tiny. <laughs> yeah, right. But they figured out two very important things. Yes. <laughs> sailing and... Paying your debts. <laughs> <laughs> they had the best credit <laughs> because they, everybody true. knew they always paid their debts. So they, they were able to, to do anything they wanted. That's true. And uh, here's the other odd little factoid that I know about uh, Portugal. I don't, I'm going to make up the percentage right now and I'm going to get it wrong because I'm, I'm relying on memory. But it's, it's well over half. I want to say something crazy like 80 or 90%, but I'll, I'll say safely say over half. Of the world's cork comes from Portugal. Yes. No, we were driving through Portugal, and as we got in the mountains, we were coming across all of these trees on the side of the road where the, the bark had been stripped from the lower limbs down, mm. and there were and, and there were numbers painted on the, the underflesh wow, of the tree, really? which was blood red. And we couldn't figure out what we thought there was some sort of invasive species that people were trying to save the trees <laughs> and taking the bark. And then we asked somebody, and they said, "No, those are those are cork trees." And the the numbers on there are the number, the last number of the year where the cork was taken, because you can only take it right. once every seven years. Oh my god! Yeah. But every time you open up a, I didn't even know that it was just the bark. I, I had no yeah. idea. I thought it was mm-hmm. a soft wood. Every time you open up uh, a bottle of anything, really, look yeah. at the cork. Think of Portugal. What have you been experiencing since I've seen you last, my friend? Uh, I've been experiencing this cat. Um, <laughs> last time we talked, mm-hmm. I had come back from Greece, right? That's right. And uh, Sharon noted that I was obsessed with uh, petting every stray cat that I came across in Greece to test whether or not they were all pettable. And in my experience, 100% of all the Greek cats were pettable. Back in Georgia, I must have had 20-odd cats. and But I haven't had a cat since, yeah, since I moved, since, since I went to college. You know, Sharon didn't grow up with, uh, with, with pets, so it was a little strange for her. So I, I never pushed getting in a pet because I thought she would think it was too strange. Uh, I came back from Georgia, and she said, oh, there's a surprise here in the apartment. I was like, oh, what's that? And then out from underneath that chair over there comes this gray and white kitten. We had him for a couple of weeks, and uh, we're trying to figure out what to what to name him. And he had a habit of crawling under all the heavy furniture in the house that hadn't been cleaned in a while, mm-hmm. and emerging covered with dust. He has two names. He has, he has a first and last name, Dusty Nullerman. Nullerman is the Danish word for dust bunny. <laughs> so his full English name is Dusty Dust Bunny. <laughs> and he's walking under my chair now. And he is like the most relaxed cat I have. Like I said, I've had, I've had dozens of cats over the years. I'm picking him up, ugh, putting him in my lap. He's not just relaxed. This is like a stoner cat. He is pretty chill. And normally you go to somebody's house who has a cat and you're like, oh, you have a cat? Oh, yes, we have a cat, but you won't see him because there's so many people and he's freaked out. Not this one. 
like people come into the door, a bunch of new people come to the door, and this cat's like, "Hey, I've never seen you before. Can I sit on your head?" You know, he's like, <laughs> he's so unbelievably social, and I, I test his um, uh, fear response occasionally. I, th- I like kind of lobbed a paper bag at him. And it just kind of like floated down. Most cats would be like, ah, large object, run. <laughs> you know, but he just sat there and it came down and hit him in the face and bounced off his face. And he was like, huh, a bag. <laughs> oh, I can get in that. You know, like no response. He's like, he's almost, we also, we sometimes wonder if he might be slow. <laughs> <laughs> What have you been seeing? What have you seen that you like? Have you seen anything? You, you and I are fans of fantasy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and we're, we're, we play. We had a D and D campaign you, going. You were the best dungeon master, man. <laughs> Thank you. You really were. Everyone, Anson was a great dungeon master. Okay, d- just remember that that you know all of your favorite. You've seen him as Bohannon. You've seen him as Captain Pike. But have you seen him referee a D and D game? <laughs> no, you haven't. I haven't. That's. Some of your finest, one of your best performances, I gotta say. Well, thank you. You had two difficult roles. You had to like keep us on the campaign and tell the story and keep track of all those difficult rules. You also had to manage like six drunk people <laughs> that were not that invested. <laughs> in playing the game so a lot of (laughs) so it ended up being like five or six of us sort of like joking with each other and then answer was gently like if y'all come up with a plan in the next like two minutes you're all gonna die okay (laughs) oh sorry man you want us to okay hold on we gotta we gotta get our we gotta get our crap together for the dungeon master's mad (laughs) but anyway we love fantasy and it's a genre that's exciting but frequently usually embarrassingly executed (laughs) yes not too long ago netflix did a full sequel to the dark crystal oh yeah you were telling me about this the crystal of truth the source of all life the skexies have corrupted it for our listeners who don't know what the dark crystal is i think you should explain that Oh, well, the original Dark Crystal came out in... I'm going to mess we this up. We were 13. Yeah, it was early 80s, I think mid-80s. 86, probably. Mid, mid, yeah, mid-80s. The story is... They invented a mythology, you know, about a evolved being, and I can't remember what their name is Gelfling. anymore. No, no. Oh. You don't even see them in the, until the very, very, very end of the original Dark Crystal. Right. Where you find out the origin of the two overlords of this world, the Skeksis and the Mm -hmm. Mystics, were once the same person and they got split in half. Mm -hmm. It's it's kind of a yin and yang uh, story. And uh, the Gelflings are sort of the inhabitants of the planet. They're the protectors of the Earth and they are lorded over by these uh, either the Skeksis or the Mystics. So we may finally unite as one against our true foe. The Skeksis. We are eternal! And this one, you know, because of our current political climate, you know, it it is political, but in a way that isn't... It's both specific and also timeless, because it's dealing with issues of truth mm-hmm. and power 
you know, stuff that Greek mythology deals with, and it references that too. I was surprised at how sophisticated the storytelling was. Like even the villains get their chance to be empathetic. I don't think anything will ever be like it was again. No. It will be better. Now, I will say that, you know, being a fan of practical effects and a huge fan of Jim Henson, being so accustomed to uh, the way we do fantasy now, where we have all the tools that we have uh, to really flesh out creatures and characters, it it did take me an episode to get past the, <laughs> these are rubber puppets, <laughs> you know, because they are. Right. Yeah. And they're obviously rubber puppets. But eventually you kind of give yourself over to it and you're like, well, who cares? This story is good. And, and I just, I know I, I found myself being, you know, 10 years old again and, and really sinking into that world. And it's just, I, I can't really emphasize how good the screenwriting was. It was just, the script was, was fantastic. I've been meaning to check it out. I'm going to have to. Yeah. It's a monumental amount of work. A little bit of trivia. Brian Froud, who designed, did the, produ- did the original drawings that, that inspired Jim Henson mm-hmm. to create the first uh, story. Him and his wife return in their role in this one to design more creatures and oversee, make sure there's a continuity of vision in the new Netflix series. Their son, whose name I'm blanking on, but, who's, but who is now a fellow designer, creature fabricator, sculptor, carrying on the family tradition... He appears in Labyrinth. Oh. He's the baby. Right. He's, yeah. He's the baby that uh, David Bowie is throwing up in the air. He, that he, The goblins kidnap the, the goblin king. Yeah. Yeah. The linchpin of the whole yeah. movie. Yeah. Kidnaps the baby. That was, I, I want to say his name was Bran Froud, but I could be wrong. But that's Brian Froud and Wendy Froud's uh, son. So he like grew up surrounded by these... Uh, puppet creatures and now he's designing and building them and puppeteering them oh my god in the new series oh yeah. my god that's great well i i um i can't remember if i mentioned this in a previous episode i don't think i have but if i did i finally checked out uh the boys on amazon oh. and my goodness mm-hmm. it was so amazing and after i'd, I'd seen it, i actually ended up partying with those guys <laughs> Um, not all of them, but, but Jack and, um, Oh, you sent uh, me the picture. That's yeah, right. Sorry. Uh, Jack and, um, I should know this Ryan. because he's in Star Trek, uh, plays bones in the movies. Me? Yeah. The New Zealand, the <laughs> oh, New Zealander. Oh yeah. We, we both know we're just blanking on his name. Yeah. Carl, Carl, Urban. Carl, Carl Urban. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so those guys at Dragon Con, and we, it was so insane at Dragon Con. You just could not get around. So we just hang out. We hung out at the same uh, club and, and and just drank <laughs> with them and myself and Ethan. Had a great time. Uh, the show is marvelous. They were already in, into shooting a second season, probably done shooting at this point. Mm-hmm. But another Amazon show that I came across, uh, and I've been meaning to ask you if you've seen it. Have you seen Fleabag? Part of it. <laughs> That's that doesn't sound good. No, go ahead. I, my, Darren, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is 
Um, it won a lot of Emmys this time around. It, it is, uh, I believe it's, it was produced by the BBC. Uh, don't quote me on that, but it's, uh, it's on Amazon Prime here in the States. And Phoebe Waller-Bridge is this young talent who originally the story was a part of, <clears throat> excuse me, part of a one-woman show that she did at the Fringe Festival here in New York and I'm sure other places. And then it was adapted into the first season of the television series. Now they've done two seasons. Uh, they're short little half-hour episodes, six episodes per season. And I th- it's that kind of comedy where... He- you're you're laughing out loud one scene and the next scene you're about to cry and i think that it's incredibly well cast incredibly well written um we watch the whole thing straight through and i highly recommend it cool. what'd you think um i you know it falls into that category for me of things that i res- that i can totally respect i can appreciate it on every level but me personally all of that fourth wall stuff oh you didn't like that it throws me i'm, I'm back in my room every See, time that well, you should tell the listeners that that it the there's a device in the show where phoebe waller bridge she plays a lead in the show and she has a direct direct relationship with the camera mm-hmm. which is you the audience but did you not see the second season no no i didn't okay i didn't get they that start playing with that they start really messing with mm-hmm. that, okay, in a way that um, I don't want to blow it, but mm-hmm. in a way that kind of undermines the confidence of the character, <laughs> because she runs, she falls in love with a character who sees what she's doing, who, mm-hmm. who, to oh. him, she's fading away. She's like going to another place, and he's like, "What, are you, what are you doing?" And she's like, "What." <laughs> okay, <laughs> right, and and you realize, oh, this is she's having a an internal monologue with herself. She thinks faster than most everybody else until she meets Mm. somebody who sees what's going on and calls her out on it. Um, Okay. But it's her relation, her ability to have this relationship. And I've tried to do it before. And believe me, it, it looks easier than it is Mm -hmm. because you're having to have, you're trying to have a relationship with a black Cyclops made of metal and glass. Mm -hmm. And she does it so beautifully. Um, as an actor who's tried to do that before, it it, it um, I was I was very impressed, and she's so quick. Now, in the world of film, mm-hmm. uh, I I would this just happened the other night. Um, I had been talking about this documentary. My my wife and I both had an amazing experience in Portugal of tasting incredible wine. Mm-hmm. And while we we're there, I told her you you really have to see this documentary called Psalm. Mm. which I saw a long time ago. Uh, and then I recently rewatched with her when we got home. And this documentary is so good uh, because the subject matter is so well chosen. And they really, they go, go to lengths on this documentary. They follow four guys that are tr- trying to pass the master sommelier exam. Oh, that's right. And I mean, this is the most ridiculous test I've ever heard of in my life. You have this plant, you know, for thousands and thousands of years. I mean, people have been dedicating their life to make something amazing out of it. It is living art. And you can't appreciate it until you consume it. It's a lot more than just grape juice. It's a drug, really. First of all, 
to get your master sommelier badge, it's immediate, like you immediately get off job offers from restaurants and winemakers and mm-hmm. all over the world. Um, but to pass this exam, <laughs> first of all, you're, respons- you're responsible for knowing every varietal of any winemaking region in the world. In Italy alone, there are 3,000 varietals. <laughs> okay. I cried when my parents died. I cried when my children were, uh, were born. The only other time outside of that that I cried was when I passed this exam. Then you also have to know the laws pertaining to winemaking in any country. You have to know whiskey, cigars, beer. Um, you have to know diseases associating associated with with vines, um, and the test itself. That's just theory, okay? The te- the hardest part of the test. There's three sections. There's theory, which is all that stuff. There's service, which is they throw you into it into a situation where you have to serve people that are sommeliers but are acting like, you know really terrible patrons and then the hardest part of the test is the tasting mm-hmm. and you get six wines and you have to name <laughs> not just the varietal not just the country you have to name not just the region the, you have to name the, the guy who picked the grapes. <laughs> right? Yes, the guy who picked the grapes. You have to name the vintage. You have to name whether it's a high-end, medium, or low-end producer. And you have to describe the wine. And you get a set amount of time to do it. And watching these guys go through this process is just like watching slow torture I mean people lose marriages over I mean it's been going on for over 40 years and only a hundred and I want to say 40 some odd people have passed it in that time in the film the exam has 50 people taking it in the during the climactic part of the movie and only I think five or six pass. It's it's oh it's insane, and um, you're watching these people. Not only these people prepare for the exam and test their intellect, but you're watching their their character be tested. Perhaps to the detriment of your marriage or your relationship. You have to be sickly gifted. Profits. Egomaniacs. Completely obsessed. Um, it's beautifully done. Mm. And I had just as much fun watching it the second time as I did the first. And since then, I found out there are two more Saw movies. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and uh, where can you see it? Um, this was on a free on Hulu. Oh, so Amazon Hulu. Yeah, and if you don't have Hulu, you can also order it on Amazon or on um, uh, iTunes. Yeah. All right. What about you, movies? Movies, we talked about this briefly, but uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, Robert Eggers. Yeah. Only, oh, right. His only, new one's out. He's only made two movies yeah. now, feature-length movies. His first one was The Witch. Which is amazing. The reason I love that movie so much was that in order to get you on board with the horror, he first has to take you back to the psychology of a 16th century colonist. 
and puts puts you right there. I mean, it's it's he does not uh, waste any time trying to bridge. You know, he doesn't he doesn't update anything for this for the benefit of a modern audience. He's just like time machine. He <laughs> kicks you out the door. <laughs> was he a production designer or an art director? Yeah, uh, production designer. He mostly did theater. He did a lot of theater in New York. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, because the design on that movie is he, I, I've been, I've, I've been, I've been uh, obsessively consuming interviews with him recently. And something he said that I appreciated and I thought was also kind of funny was that his obsession with detail, period detail, and getting it absolutely accurate... Like when you start talking about costume design and talking about production design and interior decorating and all that stuff for your film, those conversations can go on forever. You're like, well, what is your story about? What should we highlight? Blah blah blah. And, he, <laughs> and his version of it is like, there is no discussion here. This is what they would drink out of at that time. Get that. <laughs> <laughs> that is what they would wear. That's what they would drink out of. I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> Which, is, Which I kind of have to respect. I totally respect yeah, that. Yeah. Because in his, what's funny is that like what some people outside the business might think of as indulgent, he for him was a time saving measure. You know, it's like th- like everyone can consult the same historical references that I did. Just do that. There's no. We're just copying. Yeah. Like this interpretation of business is a rabbit hole that will eat up time and for, forever and ever and ever right. and ever. I don't want to see 50 different versions of a teapot. I want that one. <laughs> <laughs> it was in the photo that I showed you. That's the one I want. Uh, and I just, I love the fact that he's so clear about that. But anyway, that was a couple of years ago that he made that film. And then he's followed up with the second film, but the A24 production company called The Lighthouse with Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. I don't know how to describe The Lighthouse. It doesn't quite fit the genre. Like, I don't know what genre it is. Tell me, what's a timberman want with being a wiki? Just looking to earn a living. It's like any man. Starting new. On the run. Not quite horror. I think it was kind of billed as horror because they had to they had to sell it as something. But I found well over half of it hysterically funny. Watch us fill your beans. The story is it's an, a lighthouse in 1870 or 1880 or something like that, and uh, this uh, uh, two lighthouse keepers. One is a senior and one is kind of a newbie. And now they're just kind of marooned out on this lighthouse that's on a rock in the middle of somewhere in Nova, off Nova Scotia or something. And it's basically like, what happens when two guys who don't really like each other a whole lot to begin with? The, the weather's driving them insane. They're driving each other insane. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you just watch them just break down to the point. I don't want to give anything away, but... right. To the point where they start losing track over who is who until, as an audience member, you're not sure who you're watching anymore. Wow. (laughs) And I've never seen two actors have so much fun losing their marbles. How long have we been on this rock? Five weeks? Two days? Help me to recollect. (laughs) 
but just a little nerdy detail about the technical stuff. So he actually shot this on the oldest continuously produced black and white film stock that Kodak has ever made. This is the same film wow. stock they're shooting back in the late 30s, early 40s. Okay. And had Panavision retrofit a bunch of lenses from the 20s and 30s onto modern Panavision cameras. So he shot... Oh, is it a period film? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's oh. 1880 oh, or so. Oh, okay. Uh, All right. And he shot it in an aspect ratio that is per- almost perfectly square. It's like 166. Right. So uh, everything about this film screams commercial disaster. <laughs> right. You know, it's just two guys. <laughs> right. There's just two dudes. It's black and, black white. and white. It's shot in a weird aspect ratio. <laughs> it's there. I'm not even sure what the plot is other than like, <laughs> look at these two guys go nuts. You know, like right. that seems to be it. And right. I was satisfied with that. I was totally satisfied. I was overjoyed with that plot. <laughs> <laughs> Watch two guys. And, and, and Eggers is aware of this. He's, you know, in, in interviews, he's like, well, I mean, it's what you would expect. It's, it, you know, they live in a lighthouse. He's like, this story is what you'd expect if you put two guys into a giant phallus and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and to that end, I give respect to uh, uh, Pattinson, too, you know, for like reading that and going, oh, this is, there's at, there's, there's at least three scenes of just, <laughs> just him furiously masturbating. <laughs> I, I, want, I want to reiterate most of this movie is funny and, and but w- which is what makes the horror elements so shocking yeah and it makes the whole experience so queasy right. because every scene starts with uh, wh- wh- where is this one gonna go <laughs> right. and by the end of the scene you're like ha, that was funny that was funny <laughs> okay whew. and the next thing starts and you have to start over and go oh god Where's this one going to go? And then that one leads someplace really horrific, you know, or uh, someplace kind of lynchian and surreal and unsettling. And then you get through that one. The next thing starts like, I hope this one's funny again. (laughs) And for me, you know, I like that experience. Like, I don't, you know me, I'm not that big on plot. You know, I don't want a big complicated plot. It's Mm. not what sells me on something. I loved being trapped in the giant phallus lighthouse <laughs> with Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson driving themselves and each other increasingly more and more and more insane. That's not a broad audience. Right? <laughs> no, I know it's not. It's basically you. No, there was other people in the theater. Actually, no, that's actually a good point. I, I, I saw it in Times Square and I thought like, oh, I'm going to be the only one there. It was almost not sold out, but it had been out for a week mm-hmm. and it was still pretty packed. I can't remember the last time I was in a movie theater where the whole audience was reacting to what was on screen the way riders on a roller coaster react in unison. Wow. You know, so it was everyone's grabbing under their seat and sinking down. And then it was everyone gasping. And then it was everyone laughing. And then it was everyone dead silent, dreading what was about to happen again. Well, good on Robert Eggers for... He's fantastic. For I think he's got a huge career. Coming off of what was a critical and commercial hit, 
mm-hmm. and looking at a sophomore opportunity and not trying to phone in a commercial success, like doing sticking to his guns and doing something that he thought would be interesting. I hope it pays off. I really do. I, I, it, I think it already has. You know what he's doing next? What? It's it's an even bigger dare in that. Like great. Not only did he like go oh. You, you bought that? <laughs> okay, well, if people followed me for that, then how about a revenge story told in 12th century Iceland? <laughs> <laughs> That's what he's doing now, and it's got Nicole Kidman. Is it like in the? Is it from the sagas? No, I, I don't think so. I, okay. I don't really know. Uh, he hasn't released a lot of details, and even he doesn't want to call it a revenge story. But knowing him, he is going to spend. No, not going to. He already has spent years doing a deep dive into Viking, Icelandic culture, art, you know, design, yeah, everything. So he nails all of that detail. And I wouldn't be surprised, knowing him, if he made all of his actors learn to speak an archaic version of Icelandic and then not subtitle it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I can't wait to see The Lighthouse. Uh, have you been listening to any new podcasts? Anything in that area? Because I got one. I got one. At least one episode you have got to listen to. Tell me. So, Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, yeah. Um, very big writer, thinker. Uh, he has one podcast that I've... I've been following for a couple of years called revisionist history. That mm-hmm. is fantastic. You absolutely should take, check it out. He takes, um, historical events and then he, uh, he, he points out how they've been misunderstood in some way mm. and then reframes them for you. And then on your heaters about to start. Yeah. Going you, you, you hear a noise. Everyone screw it. Ignore it. We're going through it. It's this is typical Brooklyn I can't apartment. It. The radiators come on at any time <laughs> and they start making this noise. We're gonna go through it. So he has another podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew this called Broken uh-uh. Record. Have you heard of this? Uh-uh. He does it with Rick Rubin. Oh wow! And for those of you who don't know who Rick Rubin is, legendary Whoa. music producer, and he has produced some of the greatest albums of our mm-hmm. time. They do this podcast called Broken Record about music, and they have this episode in the most recent season that they did with Jack White and mm-hmm. his writing partner, Brendan Benson. And it's the, the, the name of the episode is Jack White and Brendan Benson of the Raconteers. That's, that's okay. what it's titled. titled. But mm-hmm. the subject of their discussion is how perfection is overrated. Mm. Yeah, and how the the digitization of music and and sampling that perfect snare don't get me and that started perfect you know baseline mm-hmm. and trimming the edges of things and that. and and mathematizing the beat is removing the human element and it's killing the soul in music. Yes. And they have a fantastic discussion about 
the difference between that and the things you do to keep your humanity involved, which includes intentionally screwing things up mm-hmm. or intentionally, you know, times at which it's just not working and then like you untune one string and it's there. Huh. Okay. Or a mistake happens and it's, but it's of the moment mm-hmm. and, and how, uh, you know, you almost have to start reverse engineering the human element in music today. That's well, I'm glad that that's becoming a, a conversation, but God, how did we ever, I mean, I guess I understand, you know, that there, there is a thing in, human creative endeavor that wants to make it perfect. I guess I understand that, but I don't understand how, you know, for those who sort of achieved that didn't hear with their own ears, the soul getting crushed because they're not artists. (laughs) They're not artists. Yeah, no, I mean, I would agree. Or they, or they are technicians that are being paid by non artists to make something sound quote unquote perfect. Well, there's kind of the, you know, hot rod polishing nerd that's, you know, a kind of a producer that just wants things sonically, you know, as flat as possible. Right. And, 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 it's, and in engineering terms, that's good. It's flat means you have a flat frequency response all the way across, yeah. you know, the channels. Things like that. They think that you're going through, you're going for a technical perfection. Ooh, I'm... I think I just arrived at something here. The, the, they're striving for technical perfection in the recording, and that somehow ends up bleeding over into the performance. Like, well, my machine here now is tuned to the nth degree. Why can't you match the precision that I have on my recording end of the process? And that's how you end up with things like auto-tune oh, and things God. where you... Uh, and, and it's funny, you know, like I, I, I hate autotune, you know, I think it can be used as a tool. Oddly enough, everyone became aware of autotune from that share song, yeah. you know, which I and thought now was it's a, a trick that it's going to, it's going right. to sound, it's going to be the, one of the things where you go, Oh, that's from 2018. Yes. Right. You go find talent. You go find somebody with something to say. That's what people want to hear. Not hitting the hit not matching frequency perfectly yeah you know where the guitar and the vocals are Mm -hmm. right in line with each other yeah what's that called again uh the the podcast is called broken record broken record yeah uh as we're wrapping this up do you have anything else big to add uh in the area of books yes oh god go ahead okay um just want to say while on vacation, uh, I um, I have these authors that I just kind of—they're like I can't say they're guilty pleasures because there's no guilt about them. They're just damn good writers. But I haven't read all of them, and I'm not rushing to read all of them because I'm kind of savoring them. But every now and then, I'll see a new book by one of my favorite authors. And I was in the airport in um, Birmingham and uh, saw the new novel by. Margaret Atwood, which is her follow-up to The Handmaid's Tale, which is arguably one of the greatest science fiction dystopian tales in the canon. Mm-hmm. And um, it's called The Testaments. Mm-hmm. It takes place many years after um, The Handmaid's Tale, um, 
quite a few years after the the current television show, which I also am a fan of. Uh, and it's just, she's just, when you look at her credits in the front of her books, you see that she has several collections of poetry. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes mm-hmm. sense because her prose is so, like she wrestles over sentences like Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a beautiful, beautiful writer. Um, and you almost, you, you don't have to re- have read The Handmaid's Tale to enjoy this book. I suggest that you do. Um, but you can totally read this one and then read that one later. Or um, and, and I do recommend the television show because this book does touch on characters involved in both the Handmaid's Tale book and Handmaid's Tale, the TV show that you might find interesting. Um, it's just a it's a it's a beautifully written book, uh, dystopian, um, deep human implications political implications um gender feminist implications that um i I literally read it i believe you know we went to ireland for we were in ireland for four days i handed it to dara i believe on the last day Mm -hmm. Uh, i just went straight through it I, i also recommend um the blind assassin is one of her great standalone novels that if you've if you're looking for a great read and you just happen to be going into a bookstore anytime soon uh, please pick up The Blind Assassin. I don't think you'll be disappointed. You wanted to add something, but I have something to add after that. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know what? I don't care if this is going to be our longest episode. <laughs> Pause it. Pause it if you're tired. Pick but- up later because I... I guarantee the best part of this episode is about to happen. T- t- take a nap and then yeah. don't turn it off. Just let it play, take a nap, and then wake up, and we're still talking. Yeah, we're yeah. It's like it's like the drum solo in Moby Dick by Led Zeppelin. It just goes on for like forty five minutes. Anyway, or if you're one of these people like me that jogs to podcasts, just think of it this way: if you made the deal with yourself, you're going to jog until this podcast is over. I'm just making you healthier right now. Exactly. This is time well spent. So we are in between seasons, and in season three, I want to do something. Yeah. That we have never done before, something something big, and you know this is a podcast about creativity, and to me, I think of creativity is hand in hand with human resourcefulness, our ability to kind of engineer our way out of things. So, what I am proposing, what I what I what I plan to do for season three, is go to a tropical island. This sounds like a joke. <laughs> Even as I am recounting this, I've been thinking about this for months. This still sounds like a joke, but it's not a joke. I promise you this is all true, people. I'm going to go to a tropical island and survive, go off into the jungle and survive with nothing but a knife. It's just your host, Brandon Edgens, and a knife on a tropical island for eight days. That's it. The creativity of survival. Yes. And I'm not doing it by myself. I'm not stupid. I'm joining a noted survival coach, Tom McElroy. And he is going to teach me how to find water, food, shelter, uh, with nothing but a knife on a tropical island. Uh, We're going to have an Indiegogo campaign. And uh, they're not prizes. They're incentives. (laughs) Yeah. But you'll get 
something out of this. Uh, what is our budget for anyway? Uh, you got to tell me, man. You're the one doing it. No, I mean, I, I mean, uh, for for the Well podcast, what budget do we have set aside for projects for oh such existing as this? budget? Existing budget. Let me see. Hold on. Let me add it up. Zero. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> So you think we're making money off this stuff? That's why we're that's, losing money, man. That's why we're coming to you, folks. If you want to send me to a tropical island uh, and see what happens uh, after eight days, and I'm going to make you know a blog. There'll be stories will come out of it. Maybe a little video blog will come out of it. But certainly, a lot of cool stories, information will come out of it, and and uh, hopefully. We come out of this with me still having a co-host. That's true. I may not come back, either because I failed or because I love it so much that I just couldn't. <laughs> I just couldn't come back. I just I, I discovered myself is just sitting in the mud eating shellfish. <laughs> All right. Uh, there was going to be more information on this that we'll post our social media. Uh, platforms um, and uh, hopefully that we can get you guys involved with that uh, before we go I I, ha- I forgot to tell you Brandon I brought presents <gasps> for you Bre- Dara and I brought presents Aww. for you guys from Portugal and, I didn't get um, anything for you just gonna reach down in my bag right here right now wow and first of all I have it's a, a box that looks like whiskey nice no, it's a very nice it's, bottle it's, it's an alcoholic of beverage? Portuguese port, port, port wine, oh. made in Portugal, and this is this is a very nice bottle. Um, it's called Distinctive Port, Dalva, and, Dalva. And uh, box got a little crushed here. Um, there are these. This is a, a delicacy here Ooh. that's made in Portugal, and there are these little. Um, Thank you, man. These little uh, cream cakes. Uh, I don't even know what they're called, but they're all over Portugal, and they're delicious. And I think what we need to do is um, we're gonna, we're, yeah, we're gonna. We should pour a glass of port and uh, open up a couple of oh, these cakes. Uh, you can edit out the time it takes us to set up mm-hmm. the port and the cake and then come back and we're going to taste test okay and tell me what you think about this okay okay well, sh- should i do the the cake first okay the port first i think it should be cake and okay taste yeah do the cake let's take a bite of the, the custard cake custard cake Right? It's really simple. But really good. It's got the, um, the chewiness of a good pastry and the rich, creamy. Yeah, but it's not too rich, right? You know? No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's light. No, it's not like... Uh, yeah, you're right, right, right. Like, in America, this would be like just Oreo filling. It would just be like, <laughs> like horrible, right. dense... Like cake frosting or something, but yeah, this is uh, this kind of melts yeah. in your mouth. Oh wait, hold on, that's oh, too late. I've already got this halfway on my fork. Mm. <sighs> All right, here's the the port. Here, come, here comes the port. Yeah. Cheers. Nice. Wow. 
Yeah. The, the, the thing I really look for in a good port is it's not too sweet. Exactly. That's yeah. the reason I don't drink port normally, is yeah. that it's just like syrupy. Mm-hmm. But this is not. This is light. So for those of you who have stuck out this incredibly long episode at this point, here's your reward because this is a funny story. An American, he, he was someone kind of like us who uh, was doing a semester at Oxford. Was very interested in the history. It's a how when was that founded? Sixteen something. Oh God, really I have old. no idea. But maybe yeah, earlier. Really old. But yeah, very old university. And he, out of curiosity, he was going through and um, looking at some of the bylaws. And uh, he found some old ones he thought were interesting and funny. So anyway, during his final exam, he they're they're who are they? They're they have names. I'm sure they're not porters, but they're people who um, watch over students taking their final examination to make sure mm-hmm. they don't cheat and mm-hmm. why not. Proctor, proctors proctor, or something proctor. like that. And uh, this American student requested a glass of port because that was in the bylaws from like. 1650. What, seriously? Yeah. <laughs> that, you, you could request a glass yes. of port for mm-hmm. your exam? Yes, because you're going to be there for a while. So, like, you want to be comfortable, so you can request, and, and it is the proctor's job <laughs> to bring you a glass of port. Now, there's two, several funny things about this story. First, the kid knew about this law and was ballsy enough to ask for his glass of port. He's American? Yeah. And then the proctor, who was like, well, he's right. <laughs> You know, you must. You know, this this probably older. I'm guessing older British. He was waiting for somebody to catch on. Who was like, yeah, someone? Okay, there's always one guy. So like, he went and got the port, and, and so so. And the guy thought, ha ha, funny. I you know, I I gamed the system somehow. <laughs> and then um, a day later, whatever, he got summoned to uh, this. I don't know the the authoritative body of the college. I don't know what you call the, them. High, the High Court of Oxford or the something. The High Court of Oxford. I don't know. Right, yeah, sure. Make up whatever name you want. And so he got summoned for disciplinary action. Okay. And he thought, what? It's, and, he, and he was kind of excited in a way because he thought, like, I went through the laws. I am definitely owed a glass of port. I did not break the law. And then he right. gets summoned, and these, like, older guys are like, and, uh, and the guy's like, is this, this is about the glass of port. It's on the books, man. <laughs> you, I, I deserved it. You owed it to me. I am not in the wrong. And they said, "Oh no, no, no! That the port was fine. You were within your rights to request a glass of port." <laughs> we're we have summoned here for disciplinary act, disciplinary action for not wearing your sword to the exam. <laughs> Because that was also in the bylaws. <laughs> and, and then everyone everyone had a big laugh and went home. <laughs> oh, that's good. Oh, I love mm. that. But back to this port. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. One of the things about Dusty Nullerman, mm-hmm. the cat... Uh, Sharon broke her leg. Uh, actually, you were there, up at a cabin. We thought she had sprained her oh, ankle. Yeah. She broke yeah. her leg. She walked on it for three months, went to Greece, <laughs> walked up and down the island of Santorini. 
which is nothing but steps, folks. It's all steps. Right. And on a boat, which is the pitching surface, left just rocking like crazy. Broken leg. We didn't know that until we got back. Anyway, it turns out that she had a broken leg. And then spent six weeks in a cast. And that was around the time that she got dusty. And uh, it reminded me that uh, cats, who are magical creatures, uh, purr, not just when they're to signal happiness. They do it to calm themselves, and they do it to heal. Mm. This is one of the most sort of supernatural things about cats. They're solitary. You know, if they get injured, they don't have social support. So they have to have a bag of magic tricks to get them through injuries out in the wild. And purring, it turns out, is a vibration that encourages the growth and knitting together of bones. What? Yeah. They, cats heal themselves by purring, and it makes bones heal faster. Whoa. So for a while, I tried to put Dusty on Sharon's leg and stroking him, mm-hmm. hoping that the vibration would <laughs> encourage the healing of her broken leg. I don't know if it penetrated the cast or not. Probably not. But at the end of this episode, I am going to put a microphone on Dusty. Mm-hmm. And you I'm, and I'm sending out through the airwaves, through our recording, literal healing vibrations, man. Oh, man. Bonus. Bonus. And, I'm, and, and just let it. And this episode is already like six hours yeah. long. But Aren't you glad you stuck it through? Stuck it through. Because we're about to heal you. Just chill out and meditate and let the feline healing vibrations take you away. Love it. The Well is produced and edited by Anson Mount and myself, Brandon Edgens. Original theme music by Jonathan Myberg of Shearwater, performed by Brandon Edgens. To subscribe to our newsletter or to the podcast feed, please go to our website, thewellpod.com, for more information. As always, it helps us out tremendously if you could leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. And thank you for your continued support, and have a great week. I'm going to try a different mic placement.